if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Daniel chapter 1? Daniel chapter 1. So, some exciting news. We are going to have finished going through every book of the Bible by May. We have four books left. This is an incredible accomplishment and feat for our congregation. You have endured it. Thank you for that. And uh, I think we have seen God just do some amazing works through that. And so I'm excited. We're going to be in Daniel. Then we have Ezra, es- uh, Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Uh, and uh, it's going to be a really, really exciting, exciting few months. Also, today's going to be a little bit different. Today we are actually going to be ordaining two men, uh, Luke Tucker and Rob Williams, into the deacon ministry. And so during parts of the sermon today, I'm going to address them specifically and how the sermon applies to them and their ministry here among us. And at the end of the service, the ordained men of the church are going to lay hands on these brothers to designate them in that 2,000-year-old tradition going all the way back to Acts chapter 6 as being set apart for that particular ministry. All right, Daniel chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 8 and read to the end of the channel, chapter. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigns your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These are the same characters, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're going to be coming up. These are their Hebrew names. Those are their Babylonian names. Verse 12, test your servant, servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all the visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, this morning I pray that our hearts would burn within us. I pray, Father, that the Spirit of God would do what me, a preacher of your word, cannot do. I pray that he would open eyes. I pray that he would bring to my remembrance everything that needs to be said, that he would help me to forget everything that needs to be forgotten. I pray, Father, that you would convict of sins through the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would illuminate minds so they can see your glory is greater than they've ever seen it before. I pray, Lord, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would give them a vision for their life and a vision for their family, Lord, that is realistic only by your glory and for your prophets. I pray, Lord, that you would let satisfaction be found today in the mundane. I pray that they would see you sovereign hand in every ordinary aspect of their life. I pray, Father, that in the worst of circumstances, in the hardest of days, oh Lord, they would know that you were there superintending all of them for your sovereign glory and I pray I pray for my people oh God that we would be people of a God given wisdom 
Lord, give us wisdom for these days and let us learn from Daniel how we can live the kind of life that is resolute in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. On August the 6th, 1945, an Allied plane flew over Hiroshima and dropped an atomic bomb. The detonation set forth a flame that was 1,200 feet in diameter. It completely decimated the entire, both man-made and biological landscape, so that essentially nothing was left. More than 150,000 people died almost instantaneously. But there was one exception. One exception was the ginkgo trees. That they were in full leaf by August of 1945. And at the moment of the detonation, the leaves and the limbs were essentially incinerated there on the spot. The outer bark of the trunks of the trees were charred. But the molecular design of the ginkgo trees, by the hand of God, were uniquely equipped to be able to withstand the blast and actually live long after. That the heart of the tree, in spite of the destruction, was able to survive. And actually the tree there on your uh, right is a picture of one of these trees from, that has survived since the atomic blast of Hiroshima. As you go into the book of Daniel, the scene there is not all that different than that in Hiroshima. God's people have been decimated by Babylon. Babylon blockaded the city of Jerusalem so severely that historians that endured it have written that Jewish mothers were inside the walls actually cannibalizing their own children to be able to survive and withstand. All of the youth, premier youth of Jerusalem were marched out of Jerusalem and taken into Babylon where they were supposed to experience and enjoy the excesses of Babylon and to be assimilated into the culture of Babylon so that ultimately they themselves would lose their old ancestry and their old heritage, become thoroughly Babylonian and so that they might now be diplomats therein going forward. But the Psalms open in Psalm chapter 1 talking about a bomb-proof tree very similar to this ginkgo tree. The Psalms talk about a tree that's there in the midst of the desert where it seems like there's nothing but death and destruction all around. But that tree is planted by streams of water that enable it to flourish and thrive when everything else seems to be hopelessly wasting away. And what we're going to see through the book of Daniel is that Daniel and his, four, and his three friends are those very epitomization of that bomb-proof tree that we see in Psalm 1 that we can imagine from those days in Hiroshima. And so as we begin to spend the next four weeks in Daniel together, what I want us to start with is how we too can live a bomb-proof life. That regardless of our circumstances, regardless of what we endure, regardless of the hardships that we incur, that we might still flourish and thrive and stand strong, even if it seems the land around us is wasting away. This begins by you giving your life. You giving your life. Wedding vows are a public declaration of decisive love. Wedding vows are when you are telling the world and you are making it public that I am off the market. I have fully committed my heart to him, to her. And I, whatever we incur, whatever comes about, whatever circumstances or hardships or difficulties or successes may happen in the future, I am all in with her, she's all in with me, and we're going to commit ourselves to each other. And I think, I think this is why God often uses 
the marriage as a metaphor for his relationship with his people. God has decisively loved us. God has chosen to love us. God has committed himself to us, not because of our morality, not because of our productivity, not because of all the things that we bring to the table. He has committed himself, and he has said, I will be your God. But what God requires from us is a devotion that says, I'm taking myself off the market. That I have decided that whatever other opportunities may come, whatever whatever other enticements may present themselves, whatever attractions and temptations may come, I am taking myself off the market. I have committed myself not to my appetites, not to my stomach, but my priority will be this day and every day the Lord. That's what we see in Daniel. And what we see in Daniel is that Daniel answered two questions that this morning we have to answer if we're going to have a bomb-proof life. A bomb-proof life requires a bomb-proof love. And a bomb-proof love is answered by when you discover who you will give your heart to. To whom will you give your heart? It says there in, throughout chapter 1, you'll find that there are five different occasions in which the word youth is used. Or youths is, using, is used. Now, typically when we think about youth, we think about the youth, right? We think about lock-ins and pizza parties and teenagers, right? The Hebrew word, though, there for youth actually almost always refers to a prepubescent child. On very rare occasions, it might be used to discuss someone uh, in early adolescence, but overwhelmingly, when it's talking about the youths that have been taken, stripped of their heritage, marched out of their homeland, and taken into Babylon, it's talking almost certainly about prepubescent children. So here is Daniel. I want you to have the scene. Daniel is not a weathered, wise man. Daniel is a child. But it says that at the very beginning of Daniel's life, when he was still young, while he still had much of his life in front of him, most of his life in front of him, that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. That is that Daniel set his face toward God. Daniel set his direction toward God. Daniel set his eyes on God. Daniel was determined to go wherever God would have him to go, to be whoever God would have him to be, and to do whatever God would have him to do for the entirety of his life. Reminds me of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody had moved to Chicago. He had a fifth grade education. And he moved to Chicago because he wanted to acquire wealth. He had grown up in poverty and he moved to Chicago to start a business hoping to become a wealthy man. And he had been converted earlier in his life because of a faithful witness of a Sunday school teacher that had come to him in the midst of, he was the kind of guy everybody else wanted to avoid. And so he goes into Chicago, but he's very insecure about his lack of education. And so there in the church that he went to, he would only minister among the children because he did not believe that he had the credibility to minister among the adults. He didn't think that they would respect him or listen to him because of his lack of education. And so D.L. Moody is is going, and he moves into his 30s, and he's doing this ministry among the children. It was really an effective ministry. But he's having a a conversation with a man by the name of Henry Varley. And Henry Varley said this to D.L. Moody. He said, the world has yet to see what God can do through a man who is totally yielded to him. A man who is totally resolved that I will set my face and I will set my direction to move in the direction of the Lord. I will give my heart entirely, in totality, to the Lord. And so D.L. Moody's response was, by the grace of God, I will be that man. 
And the Lord took that man who had a fifth grade education, a man who was too insecure to even minister among the adults, and he began to fill stadiums of people for him. And he would preach, and thousands professed faith in Christ. This man, without an education, would be used by the Lord to start a school, to start a seminary, to start a church. Churches, schools, and seminaries that are still sustaining and enduring even today. And this morning, all of you have to answer the same question that Daniel answered. The same question D.L. Moody answered. Who's going to get your heart? Who's going to get your heart? Daniel shows us that you're not too young and it's not too soon. My prayer for my children and my prayer for you is that you would set your face toward the Lord at an early age. And that you would not buy all the lies of marketing and all the lies of the enticements and all the lies of the temptations. That you would avoid not all the fun but all the pain that comes That you today, as a child, as a teenager, as a youth, would set your face after the Lord and recognize that he is a far greater of glory and far greater worth than anything that can be found in the here and now. But what D.L. Moody shows us is it's not too late for you either. Maybe you're in your 30s, maybe you're in your 40s, maybe you're in your 50s, maybe it feels like your life is just too settled. No, today, today, determine, like Daniel, like D.L. Moody, that you're going to resolve yourself to go out to the Lord and say, by the grace of God, I will be that man, I will be that woman. Truthfully, who has your heart? Who has your heart? Once you resolve that question, the second question that you have to answer is, where will you draw the line? Where will you draw the line? Daniel had so resolved that God would have his heart that he would make sure that Babylon never did. Food was very important to the Jewish people. They had the Levitical food laws. It was part of what set them apart and consecrated them into the worship of the Lord. It was how they committed themselves and demonstrated publicly this commitment. And it's likely that the meat and the wine of Babylon had been sacrificed to idols. it's, It's likely that it was not prepared in the way that would have made it ceremonially and ritually clean. It's, it's likely that they would have been, it, it would have defiled them in the sense of not making them distinct from the rest of the Babylonian culture. Now what you have to understand, this is coming from the king's table, alright? This is the good stuff. This is going to Buckingham Palace and saying, no, nah, I'll, I'll pass on brunch, okay? You, you don't do that. Think about how hungry they would have been. Think about how tempted they would have been. And think about the fact they're being tempted and they're hungry as children. But Daniel says, no, I'm not defile myself. Let me eat of fruits and vegetables. Let me drink water. Let let me make sure that I'm not doing anything that that would defile. In other words, Daniel draws a line. Daniel makes sure that he's not going to capitulate or assimilate in such a way. Danny Aiken says it like this. Daniel may have been forced into Babylon, but Babylon was never going to be forced into Daniel. You see, there's a difference between living in the world and the world living in you. There's a difference between living in the world and the world living in you. This morning, I want to ask you an honest question between you and the Lord. Are you more like the culture or are you more like Jesus? Are you more like Jesus or are you more like the American dream? Do you think more like the world or do you think like Jesus? Do you respond and have the attitude of Jesus or respond and have the attitude of the world? Do you have the desires and the hungers that Jesus had to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or do you have the desires and the hungers for the Lord Jesus? This morning we have to draw some lines. This morning we have to draw some lines. We don't draw lines as legalists though, trying to prove how good we are. 
We draw lines as those who are devout and passionate about the glory of Jesus so that we can show how much better he is than every other offering that we can find in the world. This morning, where will you draw the lines? Where will you draw the lines that will make your spending distinct from the world? Where will you draw the lines in the way that you date and the relationships that you have with the opposite sex that are distinct from those in the world? Where will you draw the lines in your entertainment and the things that you allow to be poured into your mind and poured into your heart? Where will you draw the lines so that your thinking is not like the American dream and not like the culture and not like Babylon, but like the Lord Jesus? Luke, Rob, deacons. Deacons are the ones that lead us in denying the excesses of the culture that you might be wholly and entirely offered up to the Lord. Deacons are the ones that draw lines in their life that make their lives necessarily more complicated and more difficult because, because they recognize that Jesus is better and they want others to see it. We need you. We need you to lead us in giving over your life to the Lord. We need you to lead us in living a bomb-proof life. But once you've given your life to God, then what I want you to see that's imperative for you to recognize is that God gives you favor. God gives you favor. Okay, so in the spring of 2007, I was cruising in on my wedding day in June. And, you know, I was 20 years old. And you're, you're comprehending all the things that you've never thought about before, right? And I remember being, you know, March-ish around that time and thinking, you know what? I'm a part-time youth minister and a part-time hiking store employee, and I got to pay rent. <laughs> I, I, I got to make sure that my beautiful brunette bride ain't hungry. And the numbers don't add up, Right? And so I remember trying to compute all that and starting to feel those pressures, which, by the way, I think are, are healthy pressures. They're good things for them, for, for us to feel, and for young men to feel that sense of responsibility for the first time. And in the midst of that, I get a call from the First Baptist Church of Talladega, Alabama. And they actually want me to, like, come there and work full time. <laughs> they want me to come into the office, and they're going to, like, pay me an actual salary, okay? And I'm going to be able to, like, feed my wife and all those kinds of things, and and so it just seemed like the ideal scenario. And so some of you were even here during that time. I go to First Baptist Church, Talladega. I turn 21 a month after I come onto their staff. How crazy were they? And then a month later after that, Megan and I get married. But here's the truth. It was a bad fit. It wasn't a good fit. I was a little too rabbit town, and they were a little too First Baptist Church. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Y'all do know what I'm saying, huh? I was a little too rabbit town. They were a little bit too First Baptist Church. And it was complete and total culture shock for me. And I was exposed to things that I'd never been exposed to. I felt pressure that I'd never felt before. I was navigating situations I'd never navigated before. And they didn't think that everything I did was awesome. Okay? All of these things were just a shock to my system. And the tenure there lasted a solid 11 months before the Lord moved me along. And I'll be honest with you, much of my adult life, I've wondered if I missed God's will. I've wondered if me going there was me trying to create things for myself that the Lord would have taken care of anyway. And as I've wrestled with that and I've thought about that, I had a full circle moment a couple of weeks ago. I actually got to go back and I got to preach for my pastor 
from the First Baptist Church of Talladega. He still likes me. (laughs) And it was a full circle moment that just brought me to a place of reflection. You know, that man has been and visited me every time I've been in the hospital. He's been an encouragement to me. He's called me. He's checked on my family. He's kept up with me. The Lord used me going there to bring a Barnabas encourager into my life. Not only that, Rob is a phenomenal administrator. And I'd never been exposed to that before. And so the Lord used him to even teach me things that I carry forward with me now, 15, 17 years later, on the importance of administration in the life of the church. And, and the Lord used that to help me fail in some ways that I needed to fail and be humbled in some ways that I needed to be humbled. And I've come to realize, I've come to realize that circumstances to us aren't always what they seem when we recognize that God is the one that is behind them all. That the Lord was using my time even there in First Baptist Church, Talladega, in which was a seemingly difficult time in my life to prepare me and to position me for the work that he had for me. And that's what the Lord is doing with Daniel. That what we can see with Daniel is that he uses the worst. He uses the worst of circumstances. I mentioned earlier about Jeremiah chapter 24. Jeremiah is a contemporary and a commentator in the day of Daniel. And what we have is Jeremiah very often writing from the perspective of what's happening in Jerusalem and prophesying on what's going to happen and what God is up to and what God's word is for his people. And there's an interpretive key there in Jeremiah chapter 24 that you really have to have if you're going to understand the context of what's taking place and what God is up to in the book of Daniel. Most of the time that I've heard Daniel preached, I've only heard about, of, of Daniel being preached, of them being in Babylon as a judgment. Uh, they're in Babylon because of discipline. They're in Babylon because of judgment. But what Jeremiah 24 says is that it's more nuanced than that. Actually, if Daniel was still in Jerusalem, he would be under judgment. And being in Babylon is a deliverance. That in Jeremiah 24, he says that there are two kinds of figs in Jerusalem. There are bad figs which are unfit to eat. They're spoiled. They're not worth anything. He said, these are the people that live in Jerusalem. These are the people that are trying to escape down into Egypt. And every single one of them will be decimated. And they will be decimated by Babylon as my instrument of judgment. But there are good figs. That is, there is a remnant of my people. There is a remnant of true Israel still there among those in the judgment. And I am going to make sure that they're going to be delivered from the judgment. So these good figs, which are my people, my remnant, that I'm going to use to reestablish my kingdom and bring about my messianic reign and establish the new covenant with my people and keep all of my promises to my people, I'm going to take them and I'm going to move them out of Jerusalem. They're not going to go into Egypt. I'm going to allow the Babylonians to rescue them, bring them into Babylon. And those who are in Babylon, I'm going to use to establish my kingdom. You see it? This is the worst moment of Daniel's life. Daniel's family likely dead. Daniel, they are attempting to strip him of his heritage. They have marched him as a child out of his homeland into a foreign land where everybody is worshiping different gods and speaking a different language and eating different foods. Imagine how terrified your child would be. Imagine. The worst moment of Daniel's life. And why is it happening? Because God loves him. Because God is saving him. Because God is delivering him. See, there is a sweet refrain. Remember how I told you the cross is in here? 
there is a sweet refrain that comes up in the echoes of the Old Testament that comes into clarity and high definition in the New Testament that comes up time and again that God often takes that which is meant to destroy us. God often takes those which are instruments of judgment and uses them ultimately to be instruments of his deliverance. We see it here with Daniel in Babylon and when we come into Luke 24 we will see it with Jesus and the cross. The cross was meant to judge and destroy but the cross, the cross is that which now gives life. So he says something that is often comes up in Daniel chapter 1. God gave. This comes up three times in Daniel chapter 1. It comes up in verse 2. It comes up here in verse 9. It comes up again in verse 17. That God gave Daniel favor. Now the word for favor here is a word that we encountered a lot. If you were with us when we preached through the book of Ruth, it's the Hebrew word hesed. So he says he, God gave him favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. But he's saying more than that. He's not just saying, hey, lucky you, you found a good guy. God is saying, no, blessed are you because I'm taking care of you. See, the word has said, it can be translated in the English as loving kindness. Steadfast love. It's, it's, God, it's the word that God uses to describe the covenant love that he has for his people and that his people have for him. It is a decisive and committed, bomb-proof love. It is the love that says God will be loyal to the covenant when it doesn't look like he's loyal to the covenant. It is the, the, the love that says that God will keep his word when it doesn't seem like he's going to keep his word. It is the love that says no matter what you do or who you are, God's love is steady, steadfast, it's practical, it's seen, it's experienced. So what he wants Daniel to see, what he wants Daniel to recognize is that he's there. He's there. That God is there and he is superintending the worst experience of Daniel's life according to his providential plan. To ultimately be Daniel's deliverance, to establish his messianic kingdom, to rebuild his temple, to re-commune with his people, to pour out and to fulfill every word that he's ever spoken. Brothers and sisters, there's a word in that for me and you. That God will take the worst moment of your life, and he will make it the first line of your testimony. That's how good he is. That's how sovereign he is. That God can take your miscarriage and make it your ministry. That, that God can take your divorce and use it to cultivate in you the fruit of the Spirit. That God can take your disability and not make it the finish line of everything productive in your life, but the starting line in which you can actually bring your maximum glory with your life. God takes the worst and he's superintending and sovereign over it all so that you can say, even though this is bad and I don't want to call it good, I can be confident that God will bring about good things through it. I can trust that the Lord will use what seems like it's going to destroy me to actually send and position me to be able to maximize his glory with my life until I can go and I can be with him. But Daniel doesn't just show us that God works through the worst. He says he uses the ordinary too. What's so remarkable about Daniel is really how unremarkable God's working in Daniel really is. That here is God giving, God's doing it all, God's fulfilling here. You'll notice here in verse 7, by the way, that this gave language lines up. That he predicts it in Jeremiah, he fulfills it in Daniel, and it ain't fun. It's hard, but it's glorious. But then he comes into Daniel 4, or, or, or he comes into uh, Daniel verses 12 through uh, 15, and what you begin to realize is that the plan here is not a talking donkey this time. The plan here is not that God's going to roll up in a burning bush and say, hey, here's what's going to happen. There's not going to be these huge plagues that are going to come and sweep across the land of Babylon and prove to Nebuchadnezzar who God is here. 
that God's plan to comfort Daniel and to deliver Daniel is the compassionate Babylonian eunuch and vegetables. Isn't that awesome? Now, Babylonians aren't exactly known for their compassion. I don't know if you've picked this up yet, right? They're not exactly known for being the sweetest spirited folk in the town, right? These are Vikings, man. Like, these are tough folks. But Daniel just so happens to be with the one kind guy, the one compassionate guy. And, and maybe my favorite. Okay, so I, I don't know how plugged in. The Christian culture can be really weird. Can we just all say that out loud? It can be really weird, okay? And one of the really, and I'm, I hope I'm not offended. I shouldn't have said it that way. I'm going to hurt your feelings, some of you. I'm, I'm so sorry. I don't mean it that way. I love you so much. But, but, but we like to, like, take our weight loss journey and, like, find it in the Bible sometimes and things like that. And, and like, so the Daniel diet, it became a thing for a period of time. Okay? That's all I'm saying. And it was like, this is God's prescription to lower cholesterol. Okay? <laughs> and I think it's so awesome. <laughs> I think, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is terrible. Look at verse 15. Can we just read that together? All right. You, you want the Daniel diet because you're going to lose weight. Listen to what the Bible says about it. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. It was not a weight loss plan. It was a weight gain plan. Now, isn't that amazing? He found a man to be compassionate in a land that was, filled, that was destitute of compassion. And then, then he said, let us eat vegetables and water. He put down uh, meat and wine, and he gained weight. Do you see the hands of God here? In the most ordinary things of life? Don't believe that God is so small that he can only work by interrupting the mundane with the miraculous. That the Lord is so mighty, and the Lord is so sovereign in his grace that every mundane detail of your life is but a thread in his sovereign providential tapestry. That all of the details in your life are not accidental. They are the workings of God to make you into the people that you're meant to be and to go to the places that you're meant to go so that you can do and glorify him with the word that you're meant to do and glorify him with. I've told you time and again how the Lord used my house being struck by lightning at 10 years old and burning into the ground to bring me to the church I would one day pastor. The Lord used First Baptist Church. It felt like the worst. Then it felt like the ordinary thing. I was just trying to take care of my wife. And the Lord used it to prepare me and to make me, give me the relationships with the people that I need. We just went through this as a church family. We can see this. We want God to send talking donkeys and burning bushes, but the Lord is pleased to work through the ordinary means of providence. We had to hire a family pastor, right? We had to hire a family pastor. And for the first time in nine years, we hired from outside the church, which makes me nervous, okay? I like to hire from, I like the devil I know, not the devil I don't, right? You know what I'm saying? But we didn't have that guy, and so we had to go outside. And so here's what I wanted. I wanted the Lord to like, Write me a cloud message. You know what I mean? Like, I wanted to be in the shower and the steam just fog up right with the name on the shower door. That's what I wanted. But do you know what God did? Way before I thought John would ever leave. Way before we thought there was ever going to be a need. Years ago, he sent a sweet, faithful, committed young woman to join our church. To love our church. To pastor her through breakups and difficulties. To minister to her. So that she 
felt committed to our church. And then, and then God sent her to marry a man who he would ultimately bring back here as our family pastor. That's how sovereign he is. That's how he works. Look, don't resist the mundane details of your life. Don't spend your life sign hunting. Read the Bible. It's ordinary. Obey the Bible. And then live your life. Go to school. Go to work. Do the opportunities that present themselves. Raise your kids and love your husband. Love your wife. Be faithful in the church. And the people that you meet and the skills that you acquire and the realizations that you come to and the opportunities that open. The Lord is sovereign and he will work through the mundane threads of his providence to get you where you need to be. To do what he has for you to do. Oh, mamas keep changing diapers. Daddies keep going to work. Uh, teenagers keep going to school. The Lord is sovereign and he's in it all. Luke, Rob, we need you to be the examples of ordinary faithfulness. That's what a deacon is in the church. You lead the way in non-platformed, behind-the-scenes, ordinary, the first-is-last greatness that is meant to characterize the nature of the people of God. Oh, don't begrudge the ordinary and the mundane, brothers. Don't think that it goes unseen, brothers. The Lord on high sees your faithfulness, and he is using you to weave together the strength of this church with unity and passion and joy. Oh, God gives you favor. You give your life, God gives you favor, and then God gives you wisdom. God gives you wisdom. One of the things that I have really come to admire about military families is their adaptability. You can tell, and we have some of you guys in our church this morning, and I'm getting this from your example. You can take a military family, and you can drop them pretty much anywhere, and they can adapt and thrive. It's amazing, right? That they develop the skills for building relationships that are deep and rich really fast. They become really good at hospitality. They become really effective at, at going all in on a community in a really short period of time. I actually think that a significant part of what Daniel is teaching us is that the people of God are meant to have the kind of wisdom that enables them to adapt into whatever culture you drop them into the middle of. That here's Daniel as a child, stripped of his heritage, stripped of everything that's normal, taken out of his family's home, dropped in the middle of Babylon, and what do we see from, from Daniel and his three friends? They're able to flourish. They're able to adapt. They're able to, to go and to be able to move and to, and to bring God glory and to, to be wise and know how to have the skills to Encounter all the things that they encounter. See, I think there's a lot of fear among us that every day we're going to send our children into Babylon and they're going to face off with some aggressive atheistic professor that's going to evangelize them out of the faith. That they're going to go into the schools and we don't, and so our tendency, our tendency is to want to build a fence around our families. And look, I don't think you need to give your kids everything at once. I don't think you have to expose your kid to every kind. I don't think that's wise either. But our great fear should not be sending our, our teenagers into the culture. Our great fear should be sending our teenagers into the culture without wisdom. Without God-given, God-breathed, fundamental wisdom that enables them to face off with professors and face down with temptations and to be able to navigate those things with the skill that the Lord has given. That wisdom is knowing when and how to resist. When and how to resist. We see this in Daniel, don't we? That Daniel recognizes that the 
that the food is going to be a, a defilement. And so he knows that he needs to resist. He knows that he needs to, to, be a, to, to stop there. So, and I'm getting wisdom. So you have another God gave statement there in verse 17, right? God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. He gave Daniel understanding and all the visions and dreams. I think you can summarize all of that as just being wisdom. And so you see this playing out in his life when he sees the circumstances and he recognizes. I have to resist when if I capitulate or assimilate, I'm going to dishonor God. That I have to resist when my adaptation in the culture and my fully embracing the culture is going to create a, 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 a lack of distinction of me as a person of God. And so, and so he is able to recognize that this is a time for But even more than seeing that he resists, I want you to see how he does it. How he does it. It's very different than the way that we do it. Look at verse 8. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. It's, it's down here at uh, the bottom of the screen. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs. He asked. Do you hear how different that is than so much of the fundamentalist Christian culture that I hear today? He doesn't. Daniel is not hostile toward the Babylonians. Daniel is not angry with the Babylonians. Daniel is not insistent or, or in some way volatile with the Babylonians. He approaches them with a, a gentleness, with a reasonableness, with a, a wisdom. He's navigating. He says, I'm not going to defile myself, but I'm not going to come in with guns a-blazing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask him. Well, the eunuch turns him down flat, and you think, well, that's why that doesn't work. <laughs> Daniel's undeterred. Daniel says, okay, well, how about this? What if, what if instead of, of that, you just test your servants for 10 days? Let, let, let's, let's negotiate this. Do, do, you, do you hear Jesus' uh, tone in the background, gentle as doves, but shrewd as serpents? This is Daniel. He's, he's epitomizing this kind of wisdom. He's saying, like, let's, let's test this for 10 days. Let's just, look, I understand Nebuchadnezzar's a bad dude. You don't want to lose your noggin, right? Like, you, you don't want this to go down. Let's just test it for 10 days and see how it goes. And the eunuch, that, that, that any reasonable person says, well, 10 days isn't going to kill anybody, right? So what we see here, what we see here is a God-given ability to navigate the difficult situations of Babylon, to adapt to the culture without assimilating or capitulating to the culture. That's the distinction. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, to be in the word, but not in, in the world, but not of the world. It's to live and to recognize that I live here, this is where I live, and I'm going to be able to build friends here, make relationships here, I want to influence this for good, but I'm not going to become like this place. I'm different. I'm a sojourner from a foreign land. Church family, if we want to be agents of change in our world and in the Chihaw Valley, we have got to become less known for our bitterness and disrespect and more known for our wisdom and gentleness. We've got to become less known for being venomous and angry all the time and more known for the way that we're able to winsomely navigate the difficult questions of life with unflinching resistance done seasoned with salt. Because who are we? We are not wolves among wolves. We are not the mighty who stand up and try to pound everybody and beat them by might. 
We are sheep among wolves. We are light in the midst of the darkness. We are the people that recognize that our hope is not found in the economy and our hope is not found in the Congress and our hope is not found in the election. Our hope is found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we don't have to be bitter. We don't have to be angry. We don't have to be upset. We can ask. We can test. We can resist with wisdom. But wisdom is not just knowing when and how to resist. Wisdom is knowing when and how to comply. When and how to comply. It's interesting, isn't it, that Daniel and his friends, they resist the food. They say, this is, gonna, this is a distinction that marks us from Babylon that we cannot participate in. If we do this, we're capitulating, we're assimilating, we're becoming like Babylon. But they don't resist the education. And they don't resist the diplomatic service they're being enlisted into. That in other words, they accept the political sway that they're given. They, they accept the education that they're given. They recognize that this is a place in which they can comply and they can actually go and infiltrate the community, be a part of the culture. And being a part of the culture, they can begin to transform it from within. That they recognize that not everything in Babylon has to be stood against. I had a, one of the first things someone taught me in ministry is, Cody, you can't die on every hill because every hill's not worth dying on. Not every hill's not worth dying on. And I know, I know that in our day and age, Christians have become far better known for what we stand against than who we live for. And what we see in Daniel, I think, is a very well-balanced approach to political life that can actually impact the way that we approach it here in our Babylon, in, in America. That what we see them doing is having this balance where I'm going to be, I'm going to be firm, but I'm going to be gentle. I'm going to be convictional and unflinching, but I'm going to be reasonable and I'm going to be wise. I'm going to be staunch, but I'm going to be respectable. And I think the implementation of this kind of, of, of approach to wisely living out the Christian faith in our age is desperately needed. Can I just make a confession to you how this convicts me? This convicts me because I'm tempted to be apolitical. I, I am. I, I have seen the damage and the destruction that politics has done to Christianity and to the church. And my instinct, my instinct is to say, that's not an institution worth being involved with. My, my propensity is to, I, 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 get, I get so disheartened by Christians who are more known for their politics than they're following after Jesus. I get so disheartened with Christians that know their Republican platform better than they know the contents of their Bible. I get, I get so, so frustrated Christians that, seem to think that some political candidate is going to be the savior of a whole, I guess, that my tendency has become, as I've aged, to just say, I'm done. I'm out. I don't even want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to engage in it. That's not right. That's not wise. Daniel is showing us this. We, we ought to care about the state of our community. We ought to care about the state of our society. And we ought to engage in the processes insofar that we're able to engage in the processes. We ought to vote. I think, we can I think that's a good secondary application. We, we, we ought to try to influence in wisdom and in gentleness and respectability. We ought to try to do that from within. We are salt in the midst of rot. We, we are supposed to be that, which helps propose the, the ways of the Lord. But I think there's another group of people that swing the pendulum all the way the other way. That politics seems to be all that they think about. All that they watch. It consumes them. It saturates their life. It makes them angry. 
It makes them bitter. It divides them from their brothers and sisters in Christ. They lose friendships over it. People that they've known all of their lives. People that have loved them and they've loved. People they've served in the church together. And I think, I think Daniel, I think Daniel shows us, no, 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 that's not the answer either. Our hope is not politics. Our hope is that God gives us wisdom. Our hope is that God gives us favor. We, are, we care about our community and we're involved in it. But it doesn't set the pattern of our life. The pattern of our life is established by the Lord. Rob Luke, I told you guys many times that in Acts chapter 6, in Acts chapter 6, what set the deacons apart, the original deacons, was that they were men of good reputation. They were known to be full of the Holy Spirit. But they were known to be men of wisdom. Men of wisdom. We need you in such a perilous age, living in the midst of a foreign Babylon, to be men of wisdom for us, to lead us wisely, to show us the way, to show us the balance of, of being salt and being sheep, but being winsome and respectable and kind. Brothers, the deacon ministry has to blaze this path of wisdom for our church family. Church, the Lord Jesus by overcoming death, by sending the Holy Spirit, has provided for us the way toward a bomb-proof life. Will you live it? Will you live it? Let me pray for us. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.